0: Tonight, we've got a very exciting passage of Scripture in front of us, one of the great chapters of the Bible. Let's just jump into it right now. Isaiah chapter 51, beginning at verse 1. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion, he will comfort all of her waste places, he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. As the prophet Isaiah writes to God's people prophetically, he's writing to them at a time when they're discouraged, they've been in captivity for Years and years, decades and decades, wondering if the Lord would ever allow them to return back to the land of Israel. And now God wants to get the attention of his people. If you notice the first few words of verse one, listen to me. The Lord hears speaking to his people, but his people have had trouble listening to him. So we're going to find it repeated in this chapter. The Lord saying, Listen to me, listen to me. But not only listen, God says, Look to the rock from which you are hewn. In other words, Look at Abraham and look at Sarah. You're discouraged, my people, the Lord is saying in these first three verses of Isaiah 51. You're discouraged because you're small in number and the task seems so great for you. But look what I did with just two people, Abraham and Sarah. Millions of people of the nation of Israel descended from Abraham and Sarah. And what's more, they were old and barren. Not only were they only two people, but they were two unlikely people. Yet God used them and gave them marvelous increase, as it says there in the end of verse 2, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. God doesn't need a lot of people to do a great work. God can do a great work, a tremendous work, through just a few people. And here we see God reminding his people about that and assuring them of the comfort that he's going to bring but not just in the captivity that they will experience in Babylon, but we see in verse 3 echoes of an ultimate resolution. Notice where it says, He will comfort all of her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that it's a nice place to visit, but nobody would say that the desert of Israel is like the garden of the Lord. This hasn't happened yet. Yes, it was partially fulfilled, of course, in the days of the return of the captives from Babylon, but there's still an ultimate fulfillment of this, and the Lord doesn't want us to get discouraged until it happens. Look at the humble beginnings of Abraham and Sarah. Know that the Lord can do it. Take a look at the next, listen to me, it's in verse 4. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment and those who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Well, if the first listen to me was, hey, don't be discouraged, look what I can do with a little thing, the next listen to me assures us that the Lord's salvation and righteousness are forever. I mean, after all, look at what he says in verses 4 through 6. The heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. If there's anything that seems permanent to us, it's the heavens and the earth. Pretty much unchanged, isn't it? The earth hasn't changed for thousands upon thousands of years. The heavens haven't changed either. People still navigate by the stars. People still see the same constellations that they saw millennia ago. Yet, my friends, it's very important to realize that as permanent and as long-lasting as those things seem to be, even they will roll up and vanish. But, notice it here at the end of verse 6, but my salvation will be forever. You see, the righteousness and salvation of God remain. They're more permanent than the heavens and the earth. We don't have to be afraid that God's going to change His character. You ever think sometimes God might pull a fast one on you? He'd been in heaven about a million years, and then he says, well, let's change the rules. We'll put you in hell instead, he says. You know, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Because his righteousness, his salvation is eternal. It will outlast the heavens and the earth itself. I think this is something to listen to, as he says there. Look at the next one, verse 7. Here's the third listen to. Listen to me you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Listen to me, God says, do not fear the reproach of men. First, listen to me, was look what I can do even with a small thing. Don't get discouraged, God says. Next one is, listen to me, my salvation is everlasting, my righteousness will never fade away. But the third, listen to me, speaks to us about not being afraid about the opposition or the persecution of men. You see, when we know the permanence of God's righteousness and the permanence of His salvation and when we know the passing nature of the wicked. Do you like how he puts it there in verses 7 and 8? For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the wool, the worm will eat them like wool. You know that person who mocked you because you were a Christian? Worm food. I mean, it sounds kind of cruel, but that's what Isaiah would say, wouldn't he? So why are you afraid of their mocking? Why, are you for, I mean, why, why does it bother you so much? You just look at it and say, man, that, that's worm chow right there. What do I have to worry about? My trust is in God and he has an eternal righteousness and eternal salvation. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, and he said, I cannot imagine a true man saying, I love Christ, but I do not want others to know that I love him, lest they should laugh at me. That is a reason to be laughed at, or rather to be wept over, afraid of being laughed at. Oh, sir, this indeed is a cowardly fear. What should it matter to us? The reproach of men? Who cares? We have an eternal righteousness, an eternal salvation waiting for us with the Lord. That's something for us to listen to. Now, once you've listened, I think you need to get awake, don't you? Take a look here, verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in ancient days, in the generations of old, are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and the son of a man who will be like made like grass? And you forget the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor. When he is prepared to destroy, where is the fury of the oppressor? Captive exile hastens, that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundation of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. You know what I love about this? That's a pretty long chunk there. But do you see what it is in the beginning there? Verse 9 Who's being called upon to awake in verse 9? God's people? No, the Lord. It's God's people crying out to the Lord. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Here the faithful believer calls out to the Lord, looking to him for salvation. They know of God's great works in the past, if you notice there, in verse 9, he says, Awake as in the ancient days. But now he asks God, Lord God, act on our behalf now. And I think that's a glorious prayer to pray. Say, Lord, I know the great things you did. I've read it in the Bible. I've seen it in the lives of other people. I've seen it in my life. In days past, Lord, I need you to do great things now. God honors such a prayer. Now, You know what I think is fascinating about this? is the whole idea that he says, Awake, awake to the Lord. Honestly now, does, does the Lord need to be woken up? No. God doesn't need waking up. God's awake all the time. It's almost as if we understand that when we tell God to awake, who are we really telling to awake? Ourselves. Well, go ahead, if you want to put it in that terminology, Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. But I'll tell you what, the Lord's not asleep, though we might be. We need to awaken to the heart and to the mind of God. When we do, look what happens. Verse 11, so the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And what about the opposition? What about the enemies? Notice what he says. He goes, verse 12, who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? Again, it's the whole worm food kind of analogy, Right? They're going to die. They're nothing. The Lord's help. The Lord's goodness. That's eternal. When We've got our eyes focused on human opposition. Look at it, verse 13. And you forget the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens. You know what? I, I hope it's just pumping you up with a greater trust in God than ever before. God can do great things in you and through you. It's the same God who stretched out the heavens. I was up early this morning. You know how windy it was last night, right? You heard your trash cans and stuff blowing around outside. Well, I was up early this morning and it was still dark. You know the best thing about a, a windy night like that is it's so clear in the sky, isn't it? And I mean, you see more stars than you hardly ever see at any, any time. And I just look at that and you just think, my God did that. That same God who did that is alive and working in my life. What do I have to be afraid of? What can man do to me? That same God is active in my life. And he's working it as he says here, verse 16 at the very end of the verse, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundation of the earth. That's the big work, right? But not only that, and say to Zion, you are my people. Three great works of God. You know, it's on his to-do list. Number one, I'm going to plant the heavens. Number two, I'm going to lay the foundations of the earth. And number three, I'm going to look at my child today and say, you are my people. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't think that God would have better things to do? But he loves you. He cares about you. You are more important to God than the heavens. You are more important to God than the earth itself. He cares that you know that you are one of his people. Now, that's not all we need to be awoken to. Look at it here, verse 17. Awake, awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You've drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. There's no one to guide her among all the sons she's brought forth. Nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she's brought up. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in the net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. But I will put it in the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You've laid your body like the ground and as, for the, and as the street for those who walk over. Here, the wake-up call is directed right at Jerusalem. Now it's not God's people calling out to God, wake up, which is really a wake-up call for themselves. But now it's God looking at his people saying, you need to wake up. And do you know what they need to wake up to? Take a look at it again, back here, verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You've drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. This is a figure of speech used often in the Old Testament. And the idea of God bringing judgment either to the nations or to his people in the picture of a cup. The idea is that God brings a cup full of fury, and offers it to the nations and says, this is my wrath, you've got to drink it. You know, whenever I think of it, I think of, of you know, sort of uh, one of those movies where the mad scientist has the, the beaker full of stuff and it's all foaming and, and it's all this. And, and here he is, he offers this, this, this wicked brew and he says, here, you drink this cup. And not only that, if you notice here in verse 17, he says, you've drunk the dregs of the cup and drained it out. God says, drink the whole thing, even down to the dregs. That's what you're going to have to drink. Now, if this is a typical or a common picture of God's judgment, of God's wrath being delivered in the Old Testament, and friends, can you imagine what Jesus meant in a more precise way in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, let this cup pass from me. That's what Jesus was looking at. He was thinking in that Old Testament idiom. He saw the hand of God the Father stretched out towards him with this cup foaming and frothing with the very wrath of God. And the Father said, This is for you to drink. And Jesus wanted to know, Father, if there's any other way for mankind to be saved other than for me to drink that cup, let it happen. But there was no other way, and as we're going to see tonight, in amazing, vivid detail, Jesus took that cup and he drank it to the dregs. He drained it. He poured it out completely. Now, what I think is amazing about this is he also says, if you look at it here in verse 22, excuse me, of, uh, yes, 22 of Isaiah 51, where he says, See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling. God knows when to put it in your hand, and he knows when to take it out. Jerusalem was stubborn, obstinate, idolatrous, wicked, rebellious against God. And so he delivered to them the cup. It was called the Babylonian captivity. Here's my wrath. Here's my punishment. I'm going to depopulate the land of Judah. We're going to have a forced exile, a a, a relocation. They're going to be exiles, refugees. They're going to be cast out of the land for 70 years. That was the cup of God's punishment, God's wrath. But at the appointed time, God said, I know when to take that cup back out of your hand. When God ever has that cup of judgment to deliver to his people, he always knows exactly how long to give it to them, exactly how long they need it, when to give it, when to take it away. God knows what he's doing with these things. So now the thought continues on into chapter 52, verse 1. Here we have another wake-up call. Awake, awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you've sold yourself for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. I think it's significant that the first awake, awake was to the Lord to put on strength, right? Remember that? Verse 9 of Isaiah 51. The second, awake, awake, ask Jerusalem to remember the Lord's judgments and promises. Now the third, awake, awake, tells Zion to put on strength in light of the first two. I mean, when you realize that the Lord is present and strong and fighting on your behalf, when you realize that that God has real judgment and and real chastising and, and He knows how to deliver it and when to deliver it, you realize that all the ways of the Lord are perfect and pure and right. Then look at it there. You put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Jerusalem could put on clothes of beauty and glory because the time of judgment was over. Now, friends, again, this had a near fulfillment in the return from the Babylonian captivity. It has an ultimate fulfillment when God regathers and reestablishes Israel as the preeminent nation of the earth in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So this figure of redemption in verse 3, you've sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Isn't that interesting? you sold yourselves for nothing. Isn't that how we cheapen and degrade ourselves through sin? When you think about it, it's really terrible, isn't it? I mean, we will give up our lives for nothing. For nothing. For a fleeting moment of pleasure. For another momentary high. For another momentary fix. For another mind-numbing drink or, or, or intoxication or, or drug dose. We'll give up our lives for another momentary thrill. For in the whole analysis, it's nothing. Remember that Broadway play, Damn Yankee. The whole thing is centered around this idea that Satan comes and he offers a guy the the opportunity to to sell his soul to Satan and he'll make him a big baseball star if he can only rise up and and beat the Yankees. And so the guy sells his soul to be a a world-famous baseball star. Now, can I tell you that as paltry as that is, that would be a far better deal than what most people give their souls up for. They give their souls up for nothing! Nothing! for things that they regret. My friends, let me tell you something. Satan is cruel. And not only does he want to send you down to hell, but he wants to make you look like a chump in doing it. I mean, it would be enough if Satan were to give you everything and grease the skids for you to go down to hell. He'll make you rich, he'll make you famous, he'll make you popular, he'll make your life fun. He's willing to do all that if it'll send you to hell. Friends, most people, he doesn't have to do anything near like that. For They'll go on their way to hell and be miserable chumps on the way down there. As it says there in verse 3, you've sold yourself for nothing. Now, look at the last part of the verse. Isn't that glorious? I mean, that's the human degradation, that line. Look at this. And you shall be redeemed without money. God says, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to buy you out of your degradation. I'm going to buy you out of your chumpiness, if there is such a word. I'm going to buy you out. I'm going to deliver you from it. You're going to be redeemed out of the slave market, out of degradation, out of your worthless state, out of your foolishness. I'm going to redeem you out of it for nothing, God. It's not going to cost you a thing. Now, Is it free to us because it didn't cost anything? No, it cost a lot. At the end of this chapter, you're going to start to see how much it cost. Friends, do you realize that to us it's free? Verse 4. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord? that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. God says, I, I know my people are being abused. I know my name is being blasphemed, and I'm going to exalt myself. I'm going to show forth my strength at the right time. And Look at the glory that will flow from it. Verse 7 How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With the voices they shall sing together, they shall see eye to eye. For when the Lord brings back Zion, break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Isn't that beautiful? The announcement goes forth and it echoes throughout the mountains, the hills of Judea, good news, peace, glad tidings of good things. And it can all be summed up in the phrase at the end of verse 7, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, where God reigns, peace reigns. Where God reigns, glad tidings reign. Where God reigns, salvation reigns. What a marvelous declaration. Our God reigns. You see there, he's made bare his holy arm. You know how we would translate that today, that phrase in verse 10, the Lord has made bare his holy arm. The Lord's flexing his muscles, probably what we'd say. You know, the idea is rolling up your sleeves to do work. God's ready to do some work on behalf of his people. He's ready to extend forth his arm for their salvation. And if you notice it at the end, verse 10, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God does not make his saving strength known just for those who are immediately rescued. He also does it as a witness and a testimony to others so that they can see the salvation of our God. So what's the call to these people who will return? Look at verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out with haste nor by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. You know, when the salvation of the Lord comes, it has its near, it has its full fulfillment, but there's a sense of peace in the glorious work of the Lord, right? You don't have to hurry, you don't have to rush. Friends, there are certainly times where God moves us with a rapidity. It's so often, rushing, hurrying, panic, that's not the Lord. You notice we're almost always hurrying ahead of the Lord. God's rarely in a hurry. He knows exactly what He's doing. God's never late, always right on time. When we trust in him, we we shall not go out with haste nor by flight, as it says in verse 12. Now, as we come to verse 13, it's worth saying a few words to preface this marvelous section. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53, one of the greatest passages in the entire Bible. It speaks in a powerful and a vivid way of the sufferings and the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, on our behalf and on behalf of all those who trust in him. Take a look at it piece by piece. You know, I think, though, that I'd like to read the entire section just to get a feel for the flow and the majesty of the whole passage. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his vision was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before them as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. In Acts chapter 8, one of the leaders in the early church, a man named Philip, is traveling along, being miraculously brought to a place by the Lord, and he sees a chariot making its way through the desert. God prompts him, we take it, we're not specifically told, but we trust that the Lord was prompting Philip, and he jogged up to the chariot, and maybe sort of jogged alongside of it. And an Ethiopian government official was inside reading, And Philip knew what he was reading because back in the ancient world, people read aloud. That was just their custom. It's not like they couldn't read silently, but it was just the custom people normally read aloud. So Philip's hearing the man read from this great passage of scripture that we just left. And they stopped. Maybe Philip got in the chariot or the carriage. We don't know. But the Ethiopian man asked Philip an important question. He said, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? That really is an important question, isn't it? Who is he talking about? Go back to verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Okay, well, who's the servant? Well, Do you know that through the book of Isaiah, many have been called servants of the Lord in one way or another. Isaiah himself is called a servant. Eliakim is called a servant. David is called a servant. Israel is called a servant. But there's no doubt that the phrase is also used as a specific title for the Messiah. And that's what we have in view here. If you notice, in the New King James Version, it rightly capitalizes servant in Isaiah 52, 13, and then also in Isaiah 53, 11, Because the context demonstrates that this is a clear reference to Jesus. Now, you might say, well, how do we know? How do we know for sure that he's talking about Jesus? I'll tell you how, you don't have to turn there. You might want to make a note. But Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, the Bible takes a portion from this very passage and says specifically that it applies to Jesus. Now, when you just read what I read to you and consider it, many people are amazed that people especially Jewish people, can read a chapter like this and miss Jesus. How many people that I know have thought, oh man, if I just get my Jewish friend to read this, man, they'll get down on their knees and accept Jesus right away. And might I say, I want to praise God that this passage of Scripture has been responsible for the countless conversions of many Jewish people. But you just kind of read it and think, well, how could anybody not see that this is Jesus and get down on their knees and accept it? Friends, let's just remind ourselves that it really isn't surprising. When you make up your mind about who Jesus is, it's easy to become blind and deaf to the plain, simple message of the Word of God. You need to put away your preconceived notions and your cultural Jesus and let the Word of God tell you who He is. Some of you can be the exact same mentally or spiritually hardened place here tonight. Basically, you you just kind of think you know it all. And you just come to the Bible to confirm your previous opinions instead of letting it to speak to you anew and afresh every time. What does it say about this servant? Verse 13, Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently... He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. The first words of the Lord in the mouth of the prophet regarding a servant declare his victory. He will be exalted and extolled means that the Messiah will triumph. There's no doubt about it. And I love it that before any of his suffering is announced, his glorious triumph is assured. Then it moves right quickly into a minor key. Verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. This speaks of the cruel and vicious beating Jesus endured at the hands of his enemies. Jesus was beaten so badly on his face that he hardly looked like a man. Seen a boxer after a real tough fight? This is with padded gloves, right? You can still see their swollen face, black and blue and red. You look at their face and it's misshapen. It's, it's grotesque almost. Jesus was beaten far worse than that. Do you realize that they plucked out hairs from his beard, that they blindfolded him and slugged him in his face? Now, at least when you can see a punch coming, you can tense yourself up for it or or relax or react to it in some way. When you're blindfolded, you have no idea where it's coming from. The beating is that much worse. The result was so shocking, verse 14, that many were astonished when they saw Jesus. You realize that this astonishment may be subtly referred to many times in the New Testament. On several occasions after his resurrection, the followers of Jesus were slow to recognize him. On one occasion, they they even seem awkward about his appearance. In John 21, 12, it says this, listen carefully. It says, yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. In other words, they knew it was Jesus, but the impression you get is that it didn't really look like Jesus. And this may indicate that the marred visage of Jesus remained after his resurrection. We know certainly that Jesus retained some of the scars of his crucifixion, the nail prints, the the, the scar in his side, the the nail prints in his feet. And perhaps this extended to his face as well. Perhaps that's troubling to some of you tonight. Perhaps you're troubled by the thought of seeing an ugly Jesus in heaven. Let me simply say this. If those scars do remain, they will only serve to increase his glory and beauty to our eyes and stand as eternal badges to his matchless love. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his vision was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkling is often associated with cleansing from sin in the Old Testament. And here the promise is that the work of the Messiah will be cleansing to many nations. The Messiah is certainly Israel's Messiah, yet he belongs to more than Israel. His saving, cleansing work will extend far beyond Israel to many nations. And what do the kings of the world have to say? Verse 12, Verse 15, kings shut their mouths at him. Though all will be astonished at his appearance, they'll have nothing to say to him, nothing to say against him. His glory and his great work will stop every word. When they spoke against him before, it was in blindness. But now, now they see. So on into chapter 53, where Isaiah the prophet says, who has believed our report. Prophetically, Isaiah anticipates at least two things here. First, he anticipates how strange and contradictory it seems that this suffering Messiah whose vidges, visage is marred more than any man is at the same time salvation and cleansing to the nations. I mean, look at the verses 13, 14, and 15 in Isaiah 52. They're almost contradictory, aren't they? Exalted, extolled, very high. Visage marred more than any man. He says, and then he'll bring salvation to the nations. I mean, the two don't seem to go together. So he says, who's going to believe that report? It's too astonishing to to recognize. At the same time, he anticipates the rejection of the Messiah, that many people would not believe the report that was brought forth. Who has believed our report? Verse 1, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, in this context of the Messiah's suffering and agony, this line seems out of place. The arm of the Lord, right? That's the flexed arm of God, right? His rolled up sleeve. That's the emblem of his power and strength and might. But here in this chapter, we're going to see a Messiah of weakness and pain and suffering. But do you understand, friends, that in the strength, the power, and the might of God, it's all going to be expressed in the midst of this suffering, seemingly weak Messiah. The two don't contradict each other. Look at his life, verse 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Jesus did, in fact, grow up as he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, as Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says. But all the while, Jesus was, as it says in verse 2, like a tender plant. I mean, think of the man Jesus growing up seemingly weak and insignificant, not like a mighty tree, not born to privilege and status and money and fame and importance. No, a tender plant is weak and vulnerable. But notice the important phrase there in verse 2, right? You shall grow up before him as a tender plant. A tender plant is weak and vulnerable, right? You got the little bean sprout growing up, right? What does it take to go and just pinch off that bean sprout and throw it away? It's nothing. A child could do it. Unless it's before him. What if you got a big six foot seven, 270 pound solid chiseled guy standing up over that bean sprout? It's before him, right? You're going to go and you're going to go pluck up that bean sprout? I don't think so. Well, he grew up as a tender plant, right? but before the Lord. In God's presence, that what seems to be weak is really strong. If the plant is before him, it doesn't matter if it's tender. It doesn't matter if it's small. Matter of fact, it doesn't even matter if the ground's dry. Look at verse 2. And as a root out of dry ground. Jesus grew up in the Galilee region of the Roman-occupied Palestine. In respect to spiritual, political, and standard of living matters, it was indeed dry ground. God can bring the most wonderful things out of dry ground. You hear preachers talk a lot about that. You know, pastors, they're having a rough go at it wherever they're at. Oh, it's dry ground out there, hard ground out there, brother. And I understand some places it's very difficult to to get at and to pursue the work of the Lord. Let me read you a quotation. Charles Spurgeon is preaching on this verse. He says, do not say it's useless to preach down there or to send missionaries to that uncivilized country. How do you know? Is it very dry ground? Ah, well, that is hopeful soil. Christ is a root out of dry ground. And the more there is to discourage, the more you should be encouraged. Read it the other way. Is it dark? Then all is fair for a grand show of light. The light will never seem so bright as when the night is very, very dark. God can do great things with dry ground. Look at your own life. Look at the situation. Is it all dry ground? Then praise God. God's ready to do a work then. Look at it here, verse 2. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Prophetically, Isaiah gives a more compelling Description of Jesus than we find in any of the gospel accounts. Jesus was not a man of remarkable beauty or physical attractiveness, that is, comeliness. It doesn't mean that Jesus was ugly, but it does mean that he didn't have the advantage of good looks. You might say, well, Pastor, look, I've been following you all up to this point, but you can't tell me that Jesus wasn't good looking i got a picture of him at home. <laughs> Best-looking red-headed Irishman I've ever seen in my life. Well, of course, every painting, every depiction of Jesus, it's all just conjecture, isn't it? We certainly know the idea, don't we? Jesus was not a remarkably handsome man. He was not a, a remarkably uh, attractive person full of charisma and full of all that. No. No. What drew people to Jesus was something different, something spiritual, not physical. In fact, look look at how people reacted to him. Verse three, he's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was not a life of the party man. Now, it would be wrong to think of Jesus as perpetually sad and morose. Indeed, he certainly showed great joy, and we have examples of it in the Gospels. Yet he knew sorrow and grief so intimately that he could be called a man of sorrows. This, among other reasons, made him despised and rejected of men. Friends, think of the power of that title, man of sorrows. Certainly Jesus was a man of love, but we don't find that specific title given to him. He was a man of mercy, a man of power, but we don't find those specific titles. But he was a man of sorrows. How different from us. You know, most of our sorrow is really just self-pity. It's just feeling sorry for ourselves. Jesus never once felt sorry for himself. His sorrow was for others and for the fallen, desperate condition of humanity. Seeing this in him, look at what our reaction was. End of verse 3. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Because there was nothing outwardly beautiful or charismatic about the Messiah, mankind's reaction was to withdraw from him, to despise him and to hold him in low esteem. This shows that men value physical beauty and charisma far more than God does. That's what he was like as a person. Look at at what he did, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. At this point, the prophet does not have in mind the way that the Messiah took our guilt and God's wrath upon himself. Here he has in view how the Messiah took our pain upon himself. Look at it there in verse 4. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Not our sin, not our transgression, not our iniquity. He'll get to that in due time. Right now, he looks at you tonight and he says, the Messiah took your grief. He took your sorrow. He took your pain. He made our griefs his own and our sorrows as if they were his. The image is that he loaded them up and carried them on his back so that you wouldn't have to carry them. And how many people, how many of us carry around pain, griefs, and sorrows that Jesus really carried for them, but they insist on hanging on to them? He did all that for us, and how did we esteem him? Verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, curiously, this estimation was accurate. He was stricken. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted. The problem was not in seeing these things, but in only seeing these things. Man could see the suffering Jesus hanging on the cross, but he didn't understand the reasons why, and he couldn't see the transcendent love behind it all. So here's the why, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. This is the why. It was for us. It was for our transgressions, for our iniquities. It was in our place that the Messiah suffered. I don't know of a purer or more straightforward passage in the entire Bible that teaches the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He died in our place as our substitute. We deserved to be there. But he hung in our place. The beautiful fact is that it's by his stripes that we are healed. Here the prophet sees through the centuries to know that the Messiah would be beaten with many stripes and more so the prophet announces that provision for healing is found in the suffering of Jesus. So by his stripes we are healed. And there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not Isaiah meant spiritual healing or physical healing. Time is escaping us this evening, so let me cut to the chase. He meant both. He meant both spiritual healing and physical healing. But we should understand that some have taken this to mean that every believer has the right, the promise to perfect health right now. And if there's any lack of health, it's simply because this promise has not been claimed in faith. In this thinking, great stress is placed on the past tense of this phrase. By his stripes we we are healed. The idea is that since it's in the past tense, perfect health is God's promise and provision for every Christian at this very moment, even as the believer has the promise of perfect forgiveness and the salvation of the moment. Now, the, the problem with this view, not even counting how it terribly contradicts the personal experience of saints in the Bible and throughout history, is that it It misunderstands the verb tense, so to speak, of both salvation and healing. We can say without reservation that perfect, total, complete healing is God's promise for every believer in Jesus Christ, paid for by His stripes and the totality of His work for us. I- I'm going to say that again. We can say without reservation that perfect, total, Total, complete healing is God's promise to every believer in Jesus Christ, paid for by his stripes and the totality of his work for us. But now, we must also say that it is not promised to every believer right now, just as the the totality of our salvation is not promised to us right now. The Bible says that we have been saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. Even so, there's a sense in which we have been healed, we're being healed, and we one day will be healed. And God has a glorious plan for the complete healing of your body, and he calls it resurrection. Listen, anything up to that point is a glorious gift from God, and we believe him for miraculous healings, and we see him do them. But let's face it, just patching up an old tent. We need a lot better fix than that. We need that resurrection body. What Christians must not do is foolishly claim to be healed despite mere symptoms, so to speak, that say otherwise. Oh, Sometimes you see Christians talk like this, and it's just sad. It's pathetic. It's more like Christian science than it is Christianity. Flipped on the TV set once years ago. A guy was talking along these lines, and he was one of these fellows who believed, you know, all the healing was provided for him in, in the stripes of Jesus. And so he could never be sick. He would just have the symptoms of sickness. And so he was on, a, on an interview show, and, and, and the guy said, Well, brother so-and-so, you know, I know you believe this. Well, tell us about this heart attack you had last year. And he chuckled and he said, Well, brother, I just want to tell you, I didn't have a heart attack. I had the symptoms of a heart attack. But really, I was healed the whole time in Jesus. I just... Mister, get a clue. Start living in the real world. Look at where it leaves us and why we need healing. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're like sheep, friends, stupid, headstrong animals, and we like they, we've gone astray. We've turned against God's way, everyone to his own way. Do you know that we all have our own way of sin? We have our own way. Every one of us is terribly unique in our fallenness. You have your way, I have my way. You know what we like to do. I like to condemn your way of sin and justify my way. No, each way that is our own way instead of the Lord's way is a sinful, destructive, damned way. But we can be set free because verse 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You would see a partnership between the Father and the Son and the work on the cross. If the Messiah was wounded for our transgressions, then it was also the Lord who laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The Father judged our iniquity as it was laid on the Son. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, please understand this. This is not saying that Jesus was a victim of circumstances and that he was helpless as a lamb. Jesus wasn't helpless at all. All the point is in verse 7 is that he was silent. He was Silent. He didn't say anything in his defense. The only words he spoke at his trial were words to, to defend God's glory, never defend his own case. But verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Do you notice the critical point we come to here at verse 8, where it says he was cut off from the land of the living. This is the first indication in this passage that the suffering servant of the Lord, the Messiah himself, would die. I mean, if you cut it off at verse 7, conceivably this suffering servant could suffer short of death and fulfill the verse. But no, once you come to verse 8, no, he has to die. You might have thought up to this point that he would only be severely beaten, but there's no mistaking the point. He's to be cut off from the land of the living. And this, among many aspects of the prophecy, demonstrates that Isaiah cannot be speaking of Israel as the suffering servant. As badly as Israel has suffered through the centuries, she has never been cut off from the land of the living. Never. She's always endured, even as God promised Abraham. Notice here verse 8. The transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Despite the intention of others to make his grave with the wicked, God allowed the Messiah to be buried with the rich at his death. Buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It's marvelous how specifically and, and beautifully prophecies fulfill. Then we come to the end of it in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed; he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The prophet gloriously and emphatically states that the suffering of the servant of the Lord was ordained by the Lord, even for his pleasure. Friends, the the, the death of Jesus on the cross was not a tragic accident. It wasn't the victim's circumstances. It wasn't politics and all that. There there were those things in the forefront, but behind it all, it was God's doing. He has put him to grief. It was the planned, ordained work of the Lord God prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years before it happened. This was God's victory, not Satan's or man's triumph. He made his soul an offering for sin, and it was successful. Look at it here at verse 10. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Friends, this is the victory. He'll live. He shall prosper in his hand. He shall prolong his days. He will not live under the curse of death. He will live after his death. Burial, the death wasn't the end. His life will be lived prospering in the pleasure of the Lord. It gets even more glorious. Verse 11, look at it with me. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Friends, you know what this means? This is the Messiah looking upon his work with the full view of the travail of his soul, and in the end, he shall be satisfied. The Messiah will have no regrets. Every bit of the suffering and the agony was worth it. And it brought about a satisfactory result. So how do you end it, enter it? Look at here, verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. By knowing him, by relating to him, by trusting in him, that's how you're justified. Wrap it all up here with verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. Divide him a portion with the great. Isn't that marvelous? Divide the spoil with the strong. The Messiah's glorious work will be rewarded. The image of dividing the spoil after a victorious battle and the Messiah ultimately triumphs. In the end, it's all victory. In the end, it's all glory. In the end, Jesus receives more glory than ever before. And he divides the spoil. With who? With us. Because he poured out his soul unto death. Everything. He gave everything. Poured out means it was all gone. There was nothing left. Nothing more that he could give. And in it all, what did he do? He was numbered with the transgressors. Isn't that amazing? How specific the Lord puts it. You know, Jesus could never be a transgressor. No, no. But he could be numbered with the transgressors. Is there a roll call being taken for the transgressors? And Jesus says, put my name among them. We'd be shocked if a godly woman looked at a a list of prostitutes and said, put my name down there among them. We'd be shocked if a a godly man looked at a list of murderers and he said, number me among them. But that's what Jesus did for us, even to a greater degree. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. You know, he's praying for you even now. His work for you hasn't ended. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that he ever lives to make intercession. Friends, I don't know what to say at the end of a glorious chapter like this. Other than thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your glorious, matchless work on our behalf. And let's just pray together and thank God and receive it. Father, we do pray together tonight. And we do thank you for your incredible work, Lord. Nothing can match it. Nothing can surpass it. Lord God, when we think of all that Jesus did, And all that he is for us, Lord, it just fills us with with amazement, with wonder. There's no other savior. There's no other love. There's no other glory. And Father, for you to prophesy it this way, hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked this earth, it shows that you're the God of all power, of all glory, of all command. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for knowing and telling us the life of Jesus. Thank you for knowing and planning our own life. Father, send us out with a boldness, with a confidence in the greatness of our Lord this week. Touch a needy world and to live each day with a focus on you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.